I've been writing about non-religious parenting since 1999, when I wrote a column for the Atheist Alliance called Family Issues. My kids were four and one and negative two at the time, so very young. The secular parenting world was even younger. As I said before, there were almost no resources or communities, just a few of us shouting into the void. I started speaking around the country in 2003. Parenting Beyond Belief came out in 07, Raising Freethinkers in 09, and I traveled and gave workshops and met thousands of secular parents in 40 cities. And as I did that, I focused on the basics, the how-to questions, because we were building from scratch. How do you deal with religious relatives? How do you teach critical thinking? How do you talk to kids about death and morality and religion and evolution and meaning and purpose? I call these the basics, but they are also enormous questions. And I would leave every workshop happy that we were finally engaging these questions, but also wishing that we could go deeper. Here's how you can approach the conversation about death with your kids, for example, do this and this, say this and this. But there's a whole rich context below that surface, the cultural history and literature and biology and psychology of death, the kinds of things that we just couldn't get to in a one-day workshop or an introductory book. This podcast explores the how-tos, but I also want to dig into that rich stuff swirling around each one of these topics. In the two series we just finished, Fear and Curiosity, I wove together practical advice with folklore and science and history and some of my own family stories. And now we're headed into a series on evolution. And the plan is the same. Sometimes it may seem like we've gone miles away from parenting, but everything I'll talk about has really informed my parenting and my understanding of the world. And I hope it gives you some of the same. Evolution has been fascinating to me since I was pretty young. And I knew a little bit about it in high school and then majored in evolutionary anthropology at Berkeley to understand it better. That study changed the way I saw just about everything. The explanatory power of evolution is amazing. And it's that explanatory power, not just the nuts and bolts of the theory, that I wanted my kids to understand. That power is why evolution is such a flashpoint in the culture wars, by the way. So, before I dig into the practical questions of how to help our kids understand evolution, I want to take an episode to explore a larger question. Why is it such a big deal? Why does evolution matter? This is the Raising Freethinkers podcast. I'm Dale McGowan, editor and co-author of Raising Freethinkers and Parenting Beyond Belief, Books for Raising Compassionate, Curious Kids Without Religion. My first real encounter with evolution was the movie Inherit the Wind. I was probably 10. Now, if you haven't seen it, you really have to. It's from 1960, but it bears up really well. Better than a lot of films, so kids can watch it too. Certain kind of kid, I guess. It's a barely disguised fictionalization of the so-called Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925, in which a high school teacher, John Scopes, was accused of violating a Tennessee law forbidding the teaching of human evolution in a public school. In real life, it was superstar attorney Clarence Darrow for the defense, professional windbag William Jennings Bryan, I may have some biases here, for the prosecution, 
and the brilliant satirist and journalist H.L. Mencken covering the trial for the Baltimore Sun. Their counterparts in the film were Spencer Tracy, Frederick March, and Gene Kelly as the wise guy journalist. Darren Stevens is the teacher, and Colonel Potter from MASH is the judge. You don't know any of these people. You're all like 30, right? Sorry. Anyway, the film takes you through the lead-up to the trial with all the friction in the community and religious finger-wagging, and then the trial itself, which is played pretty overtly as a science versus old-time religion thing. Is it possible that something is holy to the celebrated agnostic? Yes. The individual human mind, in a child's power to master the multiplication table, there is more sanctity than in all your shouted amens and holy holies and hosannas. An idea is a greater monument than a cathedral. And the advance of man's knowledge is a greater miracle than all the sticks turned to snakes or the parting of the waters. But now... Are we to forego all this progress because Mr. Brady now frightens us with a fable? These are the fossil remains of a marine prehistoric creature found in this very county and which lived here millions of years ago when these very mountain ranges were submerged in water. I know, the Bible gives a fine account of the flood, but your professor's a little mixed up on his dates. That rock is not more than 6,000 years old. How do you know? And this brings up an interesting question. Is evolution necessarily a deal-breaker for religion? Is it possible to be a religious person who accepts evolution? Well, the answer to that is clearly yes. I know a lot of these people. But does their position work? Does it make any sense to say that God uses evolution as a tool to create the diversity of life? That's a different question. And the best I can say is that once you understand how evolution works, it doesn't leave much for God to do. It's when I realized that, that I began to fully understand why it's such a hot button in the culture wars. Before that, I really wasn't sure. Yeah, it it contradicts the creation story in Genesis, but so do a lot of other modern discoveries. Why does this one, in particular, inspire so much heat? Well, there are several reasons. The first is that natural selection not only works fine without a guiding hand, it works inevitably without it. With a guiding hand, evolution stops making sense. So when you genuinely understand evolution by natural selection, any kind of traditional God stops making sense. But there's more. I eventually realized that evolution doesn't just uproot one branch of traditional religion. By challenging the idea that humans are special and separate from animals, it uproots the whole tree, mills it into lumber, and builds a very nice house out of it. Not a house of God, let me tell you. Evolution was one in a series of discoveries knocking us from our central and special role in the scheme of things. The Abrahamic religions are all premised on our central and special role in the scheme of things. It's hard to think of a more foundational assumption of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam than the special relationship 
of God and human. Every major assumption from sin to soul to savior relies on the idea that we are separate and distinct from other animals. Evolution, fully understood, does away with that separateness utterly and completely. As the philosopher Tullio Gregory put it, once you cast doubt on man's place in creation, the entire biblical story of salvation history, from original sin to Christ's incarnation, is also threatened. The soul is also suddenly problematic. If other animals are without one, then God must have chosen a moment in evolutionary history when we were human enough to merit souls. Since evolution is an achingly incremental process, there was no single moment when we crossed a line from pre-human to human. It just doesn't work that way. And even if there was, we would be left with the odd prospect of a generation of children who are ensouled, but whose parents were not. But maybe the strongest blow is dealt to the argument from design. For thousands of years, everyone from theologians to the person on the street found the complexity of life to be the strongest argument for the existence of God. I may not know what this God looks like or thinks or wants, they say, but come on, I can't believe that this tree or that moose or the human body, I can't believe these things just knitted themselves together by random chance. And you know what? They're right. If there's anything less likely than a supernatural God, it's the idea that all of this happened by random chance. Somebody once compared that idea to a whirlwind passing through a junkyard and assembling a 747. It is ridiculous. But for most of human history, those were the two choices, God or random chance. And given those two choices, I am not surprised that most people choose to believe in a designer. In 1858, I would almost certainly have been a Christian. But in 1859, the theory of evolution by natural selection gave us a third choice, a powerful, simple, natural explanation that presents fewer problems than an uncreated creator. In The Blind Watchmaker, Richard Dawkins describes the importance of evolution to atheism. Before Darwin, an atheist might say, God's a poor explanation for complex biology, but I don't have a better one. That's pretty unsatisfying. But Darwin's theory makes it possible to be what Dawkins calls an intellectually fulfilled atheist. The most compelling reason to believe in God could be set aside. Now, it's worth taking a minute to lay out how natural selection works in five easy steps. First, all organisms include differences among individuals. Bigger or smaller hands or feet or eyes, a tendency to react a certain way to loud noises, different coloration, and so on. Variation. Some of this variation doesn't matter. And some might even have a negative effect, making it harder to survive or to have as many babies. But some differences are actually helpful. They make it a little easier for the individual to live longer or have more babies. If a difference, a slightly longer beak, let's say, gives even a tiny advantage, the lucky organism will have slightly more offspring and pass the same slightly longer beak to them. The advantage will have been naturally selected. It's not magic. It's not a force. It's just math. 
the kids will tend to pass it on to their own slightly greater number of kids, and so on. And if one of them has an even longer beak that confers even more advantage, the selective process continues. Eventually, if the longer beak keeps giving an advantage, it becomes the norm. Fast forward millions of years and millions of selected traits produce the incredible diversity and complexity of life we see around us. There it is. So the variation on which evolution acts is random. But the selection is anything but random. God is essentially rendered obsolete by this process. But I've never been sure what to do with that knowledge. I'm asking a pragmatic question here. Millions of Christians accept evolution, but the implications for belief are almost never dealt with since they require an incredibly radical rethink. Instead, many say that God created life and then used evolution to create the diversity of life. And I'm left wondering whether to push the point. Here's an analogy. Suppose when Barack Obama was running for president, a friend of mine had expressed deep and fervent support for Obama, saying, I just really love the idea of having a Muslim president. Do I push the point that something has been fundamentally misunderstood? Or do I pat the person on the back, glad for the ally, and whistle my way on? Now, in this hypothetical, I would definitely have explained and argued for continuing support. But the case of Christians who support evolution without realizing that it dismantles their worldview is a little tougher. It goes after something a little more fundamental. I've met Richard Dawkins a few times, and the first question I ever asked him was about Catholic support for teaching evolution. I was teaching at a Catholic college at that point, and I said, do we push the point that evolution creates fatal problems for the defining tenets of Christian belief? Or should we just be happy for the allies? He grinned and said, well, you've asked a tactical question, I suppose. Not really a tactical fellow myself, so I think it depends on whether you are Richard Dawkins or Stephen Jay Gould. Since only one of us was either one, this didn't help. He went on to say that he would certainly push the point, and does, since that's what inquiry is about. The very idea of withholding challenge to protect a pet hypothesis is anathema to Dawkins. Gould was more tactical and strategic, taking allies where he could find them, and letting them sort their own stuff out. I've struggled for years over which of these is pragmatically best. When I bring up the problem of reconciling evolution and Christian belief, even to extremely intelligent and progressive religious friends, they get really tetchy and mumble foolish things about our inability to know how God works, and then they kind of huff at me for what? I don't know. And I feel bad for forcing them to suddenly sound silly, and I change the subject to cheese or something. But evolution was not aimed at making us. And that's important to recognize. Thinking otherwise guts the whole enterprise. 
the countless blind, reckless, wasteful, weaving paths and dead-end alleys of the history of life on earth make it plenty clear that, as clever and handsome as we are, we are merely one of those side streets, impressive in our way and to ourselves, but otherwise unremarkable. The process that created us is necessarily unguided on the large scale and is only guided locally by the ever-fickle demands of natural selection. To make evolution a tool God used to create humans requires either a complete upheaval in the concept of evolution or a complete upheaval in the concept of God. I at least grant evangelicals a point for noticing the problem. Now that's all philosophical. There are also hard and fast practical reasons to understand evolution. Natural selection helps us learn how species respond to climate change, for example, and how we can protect them when they are endangered. It helps us fight the flu virus every year and combat antibiotic resistance and stay a step ahead of the evolution of cancer. It's helping in the development of crop biotech to feed the hungry and mitigate the effects of climate change. I want my kids to understand not just how evolution works, but how it impacts the world right now. When my kids were young, I introduced them to evolution and all the wonder that goes along with it in ways that I'll talk about next time. But as they got older, we also talked about the philosophical and tactical and pragmatic questions that are too rarely addressed. I'm glad to finally be addressing that side of my parenting around evolution in this podcast. The Raising Freethinkers podcast is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media. Thanks for listening. I'm Dale McGowan. See you next time for Raising Freethinkers. <laughs>